0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 308 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. I'm back from Paris RB, an absolutely wonderful conference that took place last week. Today, I am joined by Curtis Rainbow Green, who is a New Orleans-born software engineer now living in LA 13 years into his career. He prefers Ruby, JavaScript, and Elixir, but he's played with loads of languages. His preferred pronouns are he, him. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Well, thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Wonderful. So Curtis, what is your developer origin story? Um. Yes. Yeah,
1: so I suppose, i started off by playing these text-based multiplayer games when i was younger when i was around 18 17. uh they're called mushes and it's just you can think of it now as tabletop but with zork you know the really old school stuff and um i wanted to build my own games in those my own worlds in those and those required to learn how to code Uh, and the language that was used on these servers the servers were themselves written often in c or java because that's just what you wrote back then uh but they had their own internal language that was really um a lot like a lisp but worse in that you could only have you could only have 27 variables total and also no white space you couldn't have any white space. It was all single line uh it was horrible but i learned to build some things and eventually uh someone came along uh my early mentor uh michael richter Um, who currently lives, I believe, in uh, Wuhan, China, Um, he was like, hey, you should actually learn a real language. And so he presented me with like Erlang and uh, Haskell and Ruby and and much to his uh, chagrin, I chose Ruby Uh, and started building websites in Sinatra. I remember an early memory of uh, talking to, communicating with Constantine, uh, the creator of Sinatra uh, and the former CEO of Travis CI uh, about Sinatra and building things in it. And I had built this little template, I guess. Yeah, template for Sinatra, for building Sinatra websites. Because that's all I knew how to do. And I just zipped it up and I sent it to him. Uh, and that was my first experience with sharing code with someone. Um, but uh, then I eventually got a job writing Ruby software in Eugene, Oregon of all places, uh, for $32,000 a year. And I thought that was an incredible amount of money. I actually didn't, I didn't, from considering my background, I didn't know what that, when he said, th- he just said $32,000. I didn't know what that meant. Like obviously he wasn't paying me $32,000 an hour. That'd be ridiculous. But um, it was my first job. And I, I, I completely, uh, I was very bold in what I told them I knew about Rails, because that's what they're hiring. They were hiring for junior developer, so that probably helped. But I definitely told them I knew more Rails than I did. Um, And that was just my first job, and that was the start. That's, That's what got me in.
0: That is so awesome. What a way, what a cool way to get into programming. So my original next question was how much has Ruby on Rails made an impact on your career? But before we get into that, I'm curious what led you down to Sinatra before you saw Rails, which is I think different than what most programmers who listen to this podcast have experienced.
1: Sure. So you have to understand this is before padrino rb. I don't even know if Ruby developers know what padrino rb is anymore. But padrino rb was a, a like It was like Sinatra. Sinatra based, but Rails everything else. Like, it, I had the whole shebang. But Sinatra was bare bones, and I knew from talking not only to my mentor, who, while he got me in, he was more of a... God, what was the best way to phrase this? He was like a lighthouse more than anything else. He didn't, like, guide me through things. He just told me what to avoid, and he gave me a blueprint for how to act out He was a very disgruntled man who who had, he had originally done software for a weather agency. I remember him telling me a story about how he was being forced to write bad software for the emergency weather system in Canada, and he refused and had to quit because he didn't want to kill anybody. And that had left an early impact. Um, but he was he was out of software at that point, other than like playing with uh, other languages like uh, like forth or prolog. Um, I knew from I, I had this idea from early start that to be an important programmer you had to have important opinions and I knew that an important opinion to have at the time was whether rails was too bloated and magical or if you could just use Sinatra because I remember and, and I talked re- recently talked to someone uh, at github or a former github employee but early in their career early in their um Career at GitHub. That GitHub had a whole bunch of Sinatra services, like these standalone, really thin Sinatra services. And and it was from that era where it was like the discussion was, oh, you know, um, you shouldn't use Rails. It's too big and bloated. It's too much. You you know, if you go off the magical path, you'll uh, you'll get you know you won't be able to do what you need to do. You should should pick Sinatra because it's thin and light. And I saw that opinion. I didn't understand it at all. Like like from a fundamental level. But I knew it was an important opinion to have. And I knew that engineers I had talked to, they had very angry opinions. And if I wanted to be an engineer, I also had to have an angry opinion. So I picked Sinatra Uh, with no other reason than it was the underdog. And that was a compelling story.
0: I love that. I am definitely gonna be stealing the terminology of an important opinion. (laughs) Because I think it summarizes so many thoughts that you see out there on Twitter and in GitHub issues, and sometimes they're justified and sometimes they're not. But I think that's such a great way to get into Ruby development. And so I'm guessing now that you've explained that you did eventually get into Ruby on Rails with that junior development job. So day by day, is your first inclination to reach for Rails or do you reach for Sinatra first?
1: Uh, oh, I haven't touched Sinatra in ages, which is not a... Indication of Sinatra being bad in any way. It's it's still a masterful piece of software for um, especially for given the earliness of Ruby at the time. Um, but I, if I'm building a new project these days, it's going to be in Phoenix honestly because I'm really enjoying it. But I, I'll, I'll be honest, there will never be a point in the rest of my life where I won't get offered a Rails job or I won't be comfortable getting into a Rails project. Uh, it, is, it is the staple of my existence and our ability to, to write software.
0: I feel the exact same way. So I just returned back from Paris RB where I gave a talk highlighting several tools, and one of those tools was VCR, which I see you are a current maintainer. So first off, can you explain to me what VCR is?
1: Sure. Uh, so I, okay, the best way I can explain to VCR is it's, it's, it's a library that shouldn't exist. Which sounds uh, like f- uh, flippant or uh, insulting to uh, Myron's early work. Uh, the original author is uh, Iren Marston, uh, a, a genius engineer, uh, one of just one of the best Ruby developers around there. Um, it's a way f- to make through a HTTP mocking library like WebMock or uh, FakeWeb, although that's deprecated now. Uh, It's a way for your program to make HTTP requests uh, and capture them before they go out and either stop them or respond with a fake response. It's a mocking library. For the the engineers out there who understand what mocking libraries are, it's a mocking library just specifically for the complexities of HTTP. Um, But largely, it is a last ditch effort in your test suite to uh prevent real requests going out from your test suite um in reality though i i'm a am have a big opinion that it should be you should be mocking things closer to home like maybe before the (laughs) the http layer but if if you need to if you need to to prevent real requests from going out and then play back a recorded request one you've written or one that you've recorded from previous requests then vcr is how to do it
0: The way that I explain it to a lot of people is that when I was a boot camp instructor, I had a student who created a Rails project using the Twitter gem and wrote this really beautiful test suite that unfortunately called the Twitter API over a hundred times. And because of that, they were blacklisted from the Twitter API and their app broke. (laughs) So insert VCR, you're able to record a cassette tape and be able to reuse that because the idea is that you should be testing your own code and not your third-party API code. Now, spoiler alert, my conference talk, which I'm sure I'll talk about in a future episode, is how that has bitten me before, where the third-party API is unfortunately broken. But um, I just find the whole concept around VCR really great. So I'd love to know, how did you get involved in the project? Yeah, so um,
1: I've been maintaining open-source libraries for quite a long time now. But um, I saw... Uh, I saw, oh God, how long ago was this? I don't actually remember when this happened, but I saw Myron post about how he needed to maintain a VCR. Um, and I watched it carefully because I hadn't seen a library successfully transition well, usually they just get forgotten or this is before GitHub had the archive button, just ignored. Um, but he had gone through a couple of maintainers and basically they got added, they got given contributor bits. Uh, and then they just—they also did not have time for it because it's unpaid work, um, and it's not easy. And at the time, VCR had a lot of really painful bugs. Uh, one was—the biggest one was there was a um, a thread issue where you could per, you could get the wrong results if you were multi-threading VCR. It was just there was just some painful experiences around it. Um, but I came on, and I had had a pattern of updating pet libraries with like various things, badges, uh, moving them to Travis CI, uh, improving the readmes, things like that, just basic stuff, Intre- you know, integrating it with the GitHub's new, uh, well, at the time, it was just uh, the pull request template. But uh, I did this, and he appreciated it, and I got given, handed it? Just that's it, it was over. Like he, he, he had no time for it at all. And I was basically the last person to, uh, to hold the door open. Um, and I realized that this was going to happen to me because if, uh, if he can't handle, if he can't juggle his life and VCR, there was no way that I was going to be because I'm worse than him from an engineering perspective. He's a, he's a really smart man with a lot of you know, pragmatic uh, approaches to things. So if I couldn't handle it, then I need to figure out a way to not let VCR languish and also help people get into open source software. So I started treating it like a groundskeeper job. I maintained the status quo. I helped pull people in and I helped give people agency to contribute
0: so that touches upon a terminology that i definitely wanted to talk more about and that's the whole idea of an open source groundskeeper so as you were getting started with vcr are there a couple steps that maybe the listeners could follow should they decide to take the brave step of taking over an open source project
1: um yes i would say all right the the millennial millennial in me wants to say just don't it's not it's, it's really not worth it but but uh okay like Think about what prevents you from working or oh, contributing to an open source library, right? Just like, just keep that in mind. And then when you go to finally take maintain a library, uh, just make those things less painful for the people coming in. Uh, make it very clear which tickets are uh, f- f- for first-time contributors. Not just in terms of contributing open source, but maybe sometimes first-time programming. Um, uh, make it very clear which tickets are like the really hard ones those, those for the cha- for people looking for a challenge. Uh, someone came along and fixed our uh, multi-threading issue. Uh, just out of the blue. They, can, they contributed a huge amount of time. Um, be very, very, very gracious and friendly to the other open source maintainers who come along. Uh, so we recently had... Uh, someone in our media community, I think? Uh, we had someone from the Faraday group, the a, a library, uh, come along and help us upgrade to their latest version because they had some bad code in their previous version that they wanted to get away from, and we were one of the biggest dependents upon them. And it was fantastic, and I tried my very best to make them feel appreciated for their work because otherwise it wasn't getting done. Um,
0: that is absolutely incredible. So basically you stepped in and you were able to corral people and encourage them and really acknowledge people as they were contributing to the library and keeping issues clean and assigning things, probably putting labels on things.
1: Yes, it's, it's, it is as close as I'll get to a manage managerial job. Uh, and it's, it's very rewarding in many reasons, I mean, for, for many reasons, but largely because you get to see a lot of people do cool stuff and that's always nice.
0: So I had a debate with a friend the other day, and I'd actually like to get your take on it. They use this very popular library in the JavaScript community, and unfortunately, this library is no longer maintained. They use it at work, and so they're considering starting over and creating a new library that does the exact same things, but does a couple things different based on their own style preferences. Now, the debate that I had with this person is I told them it would be more admirable for them to step in and take over maintainership of the older library that a lot of people depended upon, but they were very insistent that starting the new library gave them a chance to, you know, put their footprint on something and really do things the way that they wanted to do it. And so I guess my point was that it was fine to start the new library, but there should be a very easy transition from the old one to the new one should they really go with the new one. But I'd love to hear. which which step do you think would be more admirable to do within the community so i have definitely
1: done both and i definitely i feel like the creating the new thing on your own is so much so much easier but it's it is it's kind of selfish right like you you want to build something that is yours not someone else's and it's your style and your way you don't want to have to make any negotiations and ultimately I know there's a lot of people out there who have this grand ideal about open source. Um, and I would tell that person that, you know, life is short, do what's the easiest and most, uh, most beneficial to you. Uh, but there is value in that negotiation. Um, there is value in, in sort of helping people transition the way you've described from one to the other, because, there are things that you will miss in your re-implementation, undoubtedly. That's just, that's one of the downfalls of rewrites, right? Is that you will you will miss the reason why you or someone else did something in the past. Uh, because you just don't have that context anymore. It's gone, it's 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 no longer there. Um, so, making those bridges can help you catch those issues a lot earlier. Um, there are certainly things that I would have not done if I had just cloned VCR into my own thing, and I would never have even probably have heard those problems because my library would have had a lot less impact than VCRs. But by joining up with VCR, I'm able to bring my style and also all the hard work that was done before it.
0: I love that. I'll definitely be sharing that advice with my friend. So speaking of maintainership, um, can you tell me about VCR's recent change to the MIT Hippocratic license?
1: Yeah. So um, honestly, it's it's not a very exciting story. Uh, I was scrolling through Twitter as I'm wont to do on every day, um, and I saw a post from I can't remember what it was. I think it was some. It was a retweet from one of my friends, uh, and it was about this license. Uh, this ethical open-source movement. Um, and the ethical open-source movement page doesn't actually pick a license. It doesn't say, hey, use this license. It says, here are a few th- few licenses that kind of try to approach this new concept. Well, not new concept, but reinvigorated concept in the wake of recent events. Um, this has actually been an ongoing discussion going far as back as uh, there was this great a uh, conversation or a conversation piece about uh, an interaction between Admiral Grace Hopper and um, I want to say his name was Edward Berkeley uh, at a conference and they talk about using software for military means uh, and the ethical nature of that. Um, and so this website just is basically making the case that, hey, we have a lot of impact to software engineers, probably significantly more impact than we realize. Uh, and we should be careful about where we swing that hammer, you know? Um, and it prevented, presented a couple of ideas on like, hey, here's some licenses and here's where they, uh, excel and here's where they falter and here's why you might pick this one or that one. And the first one that I felt a kinship to was the first Do No Harm license. Um, and I, I, I don't know if it was just the, the name that really Caught me at first, but the license itself was like pretty reasonable. I felt like I, I could live by what the license was saying uh, that the license had, you know, had to enforce. So uh, I gathered up the other maintainers. Uh, there's two other, two to three other maintainers that frequent VCR that are in similar roles as myself. They're more a consortium of, of people to, to agree on a change. And I said, hey, here's what I would like to change the license to. Now the license hadn't been changed for a while. Uh, and it was still the one that, uh, Myron had first implemented. Uh, and so I updated it. I tried to make it as similar as possible to old license so the diff sh- could show like the real differences. Um, and we all kind of talked about it a little bit, uh, pr- privately and then publicly, and then we approved it, and merged it. And the goal was to basically say, okay, well, we, we want, we spend our free time on this, you know, this is not paid to us. Oh, actually that's not true. We make like, I think we make technically, we make a dollar a year from uh, the Open Collective Initiative, uh, so it's technically paid, but uh, I don't think that money goes anywhere. Um, and, but we, we get paid some small amount of money, and we spend our time on this. Who do we want to be using this software? Who do we feel is a good, use, a good user of this software? And the license seemed to describe someone that we agreed would be a good user.
0: That's great. I, I love that you had this kinship amongst the different maintainers and we'll definitely link everything in the show notes. But listeners, if you're not familiar with the license, I would definitely check it out. It's, it's I think, really great for our community.
1: Yeah, um, I, we, we, we are unlucky and lucky in that we have, as engineers, we, have, we know what our history is. And there's some pretty dark stuff uh, in the 1940s from IBM that we know about that's well documented. And this license won't would, won't stop. I wouldn't stop at nineteen forties IBM, but it will get us to think about what the future of our the future and present of our industry looks like, and I'm I'm
0: hugely behind that. That's great. So Curtis, do you have any important opinions on the future of either the Ruby or Rails community? I'd especially be interested in your take since you work in Elixir as well.
1: Yeah. Uh. Oh man. Uh. Ruby is like probably the best it'll ever be, which is great. It's, it's, it's a good language, and it enables a lot of, lot of stuff. Um, I know that Yukihiro Matsumoto is working on types for Ruby in 3.0. He's been working on it for a long time, uh, optional typing, that is. Uh, and I think that'll be an interesting existence when it's part of the language. But he also worked on refinements, and I don't think I've ever seen anybody use refinements in the real world. So it'll be uh, the what Ruby's core maintainers want and what Ruby developers use often vary. So it be I don't think Ruby's future will change all that much. What we've got is a stable ecosystem. We've got uh, some really great engineers who are very uh, prolific. Uh, and we have a great community um, and that's honestly all you can ask for from a programming language these days or the, the best you can ask for um, but I, I don't see it changing all that much. Rails is similarly. I see them, uh, Rails doing more uh, for you and, and not less uh, which will be great for a lot of people uh, but I don't, I, again I don't see it changing much. Now I, I have, as you mentioned, I have been Uh, using Elixir a lot lately and I think it is it is a language of of the things that I like in programming programming languages, of the fine points I care about Elixir takes me closer to those finer points than Ruby does and so I'm enjoying it a lot. Phoenix is the same way. uh, Of the things I like about Rails uh, and the things I like about web development Phoenix gets me closer to those points.
0: Do you feel that Phoenix has caught up to Rails?
1: No, absolutely not. Uh, but that's the, I would like to point out that maybe it doesn't have to. Uh, not just because like, oh, it's good enough, but like there are things that Rails core contributors probably regret that, that Rails did, that Rails even got its foot into. And much, I think, much to the surprise of many people, uh, frameworks like Rails, uh, two things. One. they are a lot more like languages than people expected in that deprecating things is harder than you'd uh, normally have in a library. Uh, When Rails gets rid of something, people get angry. Um, And two, um, how to best put this, like, it's much more than the code that's being written. So Phoenix doesn't have a lot of the things that Rails does, Uh, but it's good enough in, in almost all the cases I've encountered. The places where it lacks are community. Um, There's a lot of Phoenix engineers, but not a huge amount. Uh, There are some Phoenix jobs, but nowhere near Rails. Um, And the communities are significantly smaller. I don't even know if, I think maybe Los Angeles has one. And it might be like 10 people. Whereas the Rails and Ruby meetups here are like filled out. But that's, I mean, where it's at is
0: fine. Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So my last question for you, and this is a fun one. I know you're an avid role-playing game enthusiast. <laughs> Have you been able to tie tabletop games back to programming?
1: Oh, uh, it so, man, I, I think I've been into the concept of role-playing games since a so lot, lot longer. I will embarrassingly admit that when I was younger, I used to do uh, phone-based D&D, which is exactly as nerdy as it sounds. Uh, but it was like that. I lived in New Orleans and there weren't that many role-playing game communities in New Orleans. Uh, so, I know. The answer is because, like, truly, I've tried so hard. And I think a lot of what I feel about software today comes from my attempt to, to integrate those two things. Because role-playing games are, at its very core, a social experience. And software is so bad at controlling social experiences; it's just just the wrong tool for the job. Uh, despite my best efforts, uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I ever did recursion was actually building a D and D discussion website, and I wanted nested comments. And so my my role playing experience and my uh, my programming experience are heavily tied together, but no, honestly not. I mean, like most of the best tools have already just been written. So it's hard to, hard to improve upon what already exists.
0: That's awesome. So Curtis, how can listeners follow you?
1: Yeah. So, uh, not that you really should, but I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can basically Google my name. I, uh, there's only one person in the world with my name, so you can Google me and find me, uh, literally everywhere. Um, and anywhere, honestly, if you feel... there, There's there's better people you can follow, uh, uh, but if you truly, truly want to see the worst takes on Twitter, just hit me up there.
0: Okay, great. Well, we'll definitely link that in the show notes, so listeners, be sure to follow Curtis. Thank you so much for guessing on the show today, and a sincere thank you from the Ruby community for all your contributions.
1: Uh, it has been fantastic to be on this podcast. It Just the listeners, the person... Who is running this is an absolute genius for doing this and they are fantastic in every way
0: i am blushing thank you curtis